All right, so Jonah chapter 3, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. What do we do with Jonah chapter 3? It is an interesting chapter. For example, Jonah, he's in the first four verses, but then after he preaches his sermon, the chapter doesn't mention him again. And the focus is entirely on the Ninevites, especially the king of Nineveh. Jonah chapter 3 has a lot of parallels with Jonah chapter 1. In both chapters, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh. Of course, in the first one, he runs away. second one, he actually does what God tells him to do. But he's still a bit reluctant, just like he was in chapter 1. In both chapters, pagans repent of their idolatry and they turn to the Lord. In both chapters, God shows mercy and relents from disaster. But chapter 3 also leaves us with some challenging questions. Did Jonah's entire sermon really only consist of five words? In the Hebrew, it's only a five-word sermon. I've already exceeded that this morning, so no luck at that. How did, if it was just a five-word sermon, then how did the king of Nineveh know what God to pray for? How did the king of Nineveh know how to repent or what to repent of? And did the people of Nineveh have a true spiritual conversion? I mean, did they reject all their false gods and become covenant people of the Lord God of Israel? Or was something else going on here? And if it was something else, and if Jonah only preached a five-word sermon, what does this mean for us today? How do we apply Jonah chapter 3 to our lives as Christians? So y'all work on that for me, and we'll get back together next week, okay? I'm just kidding. I have been wrestling with this all week long. What do you do with this chapter? It's a challenging chapter to preach on. It's, it's sort of like the middle movie in a trilogy, you know, like, like the two towers to the Lord of the Rings or the Empire Strikes Back to Star Wars. It raises more questions than it really seems to answer. It's like it's setting us up for the next chapter, which it is, right? I mean, chapter 4 is the climax of the story. It's where everything comes to a head, and, and, and it's what the lesson of the book of Jonah is really in, Jonah chapter 4. And we'll get there next week. But this morning, let's see what we can glean from Jonah chapter 3. And there are a few things we can learn about, so let's dive right in. The first thing we learn about is God's mission. God's mission, the story began in chapter 1 with God sending Jonah on a mission to preach against the great city of Nineveh because of its wickedness. And if Jonah fled from God because he would rather spend some time in a fish's belly than seek the spiritual good of a city that he despised. And Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 parallel the first three verses of chapter 1, almost to a T, except this time Jonah reluctantly obeys. So let's look at Jonah 3, verses 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is after he's been spit up from the fish onto the beach. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. The last two sermons, we've looked at Jonah's problems, right? Jonah has some serious problems. His racial and national identity had become idols. I mean, he 
genuinely was bigoted toward non-Israelites, toward Gentiles. He, he hated them. He didn't want anything good to happen to them. But this story, if nothing else, tells us that God is a missional God. He's on a mission to redeem all people, all of fallen humanity. He wants everyone to bring glory to His name. But we also see from this story that God is not just a missional God. He's not just on a mission. He's a sending God. He sends His people on mission as well. He wants us to partner with Him in redeeming a fallen world and proclaiming His message. And just like God gave Jonah, He has given us a mission to go and tell others His Word. But first, God's Word has to do a work in our hearts. There's two missions in this story. There's God's mission to the Ninevites through Jonah. There's also God's mission to Jonah. He's doing a work in Jonah's heart, just like he needs to do a work in our hearts. Jonah's hatred for the people of Nineveh, his distrust of God, were heart problems. And really the point of this book isn't even God's mission to the Ninevites. That's that's sort of the setup. The real point of this book is God's mission to, to, to Jonah. It's His work in Jonah's heart. Jonah was guilty of intolerance, of excluding other people from God's grace simply because he didn't like them. That's a problem we have in our own culture, isn't it? Some people kind of sneer at others who maybe are more liberal than they are as social justice warriors or snowflakes. Others, maybe, have a disdain for people that are more conservative than them, calling them you know, hateful bigots or judgmental. We're seeing a new kind of tribalism rise up in America as everybody kind of retreats to their own corners. And that's not a good thing. That's not healthy for our culture, for our country. And this is the way it was in the ancient world. Except it was much worse. In the ancient world, your race, your nationality were everything. It determined your status in society. It determined your worth and value. It even dictated the gods that you worshipped. In the ancient world, your religion was just another expression of your race. This is one of the reasons why Christianity was so revolutionary. Because Jesus taught us to love our enemies. To pray for those who persecute us. To do good to those who hate us. And then He commanded His disciples to go make more disciples from every ethnos. That means from every tribe and tongue, every people group on the earth. Jesus wants disciples from them. Paul wrote twice that as Christians, our identity is primarily not rooted in race, gender, or social status. Our identity is first and foremost rooted in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, Here, meaning in the body of Christ, here is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says something very similar in Colossians 3.11. Here there are no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Jesus, Paul isn't saying that Jesus erases the distinctiveness of our ethnicities and our cultures and, and, our, and our personal history. God is a God of diversity. We talked about this uh, the other night uh, on uh, Wednesday night. God is a God of diversity. 
mean, just look at the diversity of, of plants and animals and landscapes. Look at the diversity of people just even in this room. Uh, in so many different ways, God loves diversity and we should celebrate that. But what Paul is saying is that out of our diversity, Jesus creates a new unity. It's unity in the, in the midst of diversity. It's like our national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Yes, we're many. Yes, we're varied. But we are one. That means that I am a Christian first. I'm an American second. Right? I'm a Christian first. I'm a man second. I'm a Christian first. That's who I am. That means I need to extend grace to those who are different from me because God, who is wholly other and different from me in every way, has extended grace to me. And together, as recipients of that grace, we are the body of Christ, united as one under the headship of Christ, filled with the same one Spirit of God. So as followers of Jesus, we have to reject this tribalism that we see today because there's only one tribe that counts. And that's the church, the tribe of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's all that should matter to us. Now this is going to require a mighty work of God in Jonah's heart to get him to go and preach to this city with compassion. Because the, the, the people of Assyria, the Ninevites, were a huge threat to his people, the people of Israel. And God cared about Nineveh. The text tells us several times God cared about Nineveh because it was a great city. Now, what made Nineveh great? Well, there are a few things. We know that Nineveh was great in history. If you go back to Genesis chapter 10, it was established by Noah's grandson Nimrod. And there's a name for you. And, and we know that it was the capital of Assyria, one of the greatest empires ever on the face of the earth. We know that it was great in size. It had 120,000 inhabitants at the time of, of Jonah's being written. It was surround, surrounded by a wall that was eight miles long. And if you included the surrounding settlements, kind of like the, 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 the Nineveh Metroplex, you might call it, it was about 60 miles across. It was a big city. It was, it was great in splendor and influence. It was wealthy. It was powerful. It had military might. And it was great in sin. The Assyrian culture was a violent culture. They had no mercy on their enemies. They were known for routinely slaughtering babies and children. They would take people and they would, they would impale them on stakes alive and put them in the desert to roast in the sun. They would flay the skin off of people's bodies. They would behead people and stack up their skulls at the city gates. These were not pleasant people. You know, no tourists, no, no, no travel agents were sending tourists there, right? It's a bloody, violent culture. But the reason God called it great wasn't just that it was big and powerful or great in sin. It's because it was important to God's plan. And because it was important, just as every city is important, because it was filled with people. See, God cares for cities big and small because people live in them. God cares about people. When the Jews were exiled in Babylon, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah to command the Jewish people to seek the welfare of these pagan cities. These people that had captured them and taken them, he said, seek the welfare of these cities. In Jeremiah 29, 4-7, it says, This is what the Lord the Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. 
Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What work does God need to do in your heart so that you care for our city? What does God need to do in your heart so that you have the kind of burden to pray for Thompson and McDuffie County, to seek its welfare, to work, to make a difference? Because we need to have compassion on our neighbors, even our neighbors across town. We need to have compassion on our co-workers, on the people who live and work and play in McDuffie County. Maybe this morning you need to confess some prejudice in your heart toward those who look, talk, dress, vote, or act differently than you do. Maybe you need to ask God to give you a fresh burden for those around you, for the community in which you live, work, and play. God can change your heart. God changes Jonah's heart, we hope. Does God change your heart? But the mission doesn't work, doesn't end with God's work in Jonah's heart or in our heart. He works in our heart so that his mission can then continue through our mouths. See, once again, God commands Jonah to go and preach his message to the people in Nineveh, and Jonah goes. Now, it probably took him a few weeks, maybe even a month, to travel from the Mediterranean coast all the way to Assyria, which is in modern-day Iran. It was a long trek. And it gave Jonah lots of time to think about his message. You know, I mean, he had a lot of time to prepare that sermon. And he probably had time to think about what an impossible mission this was. I mean, how can one man claiming to be a prophet of God confront an entire culture and a huge population of 120,000 people with a weird message? How could a Hebrew even get these idolatrous Gentiles to believe, to listen to him, much less believe in him. You know, Jonah probably wondered, you know, am I going to end up impaled or flayed? <laughs> I don't want my skull adorning the city gates. He had a lot of time to think about these things. God may not call you or me to leave our homes and go to a distant land, but even if he just calls us to go across the street or across the room, there's risk involved. Anytime we go to share the gospel, you know, we, we can risk our reputation. We can risk a position in our company. We can risk our friendship. But isn't the risk worth it if it spares somebody eternal damnation? Isn't the risk worth it if it means transformed lives, saved marriages, transformed communities? Isn't it worth whatever risk we have to take? The question that we must answer is the same as Jonah. Do we trust God? Do we trust God that He will speak through us and effect eternal change in the lives of those to whom we speak? Do we understand and believe that it isn't even our effort that saves somebody, but the power of God? It's not about you and me. Jonah doesn't preach an elaborate eloquent message. He wasn't polished. He wasn't well-dressed. He probably still smelled like fish guts. The change that's about to happen in Nineveh isn't because of Jonah. 
It's because of the power of God's message. Our New Testament reading today, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. It's the power of God's message, not you and me. Look with me at Jonah chapter 3, verse 3 again. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And that's the last we see of Jonah in this chapter. The author obviously wants us to see that Jonah's heart is still not quite in this mission. He's going. He's going to preach. But Jonah is bent and determined to do the least amount of work possible while still being obedient. He is trying to scrape by with God's minimum requirements. It's kind of like what Ben was saying in the children's sermon. You know, maybe if you were in school and you had to do a book report, maybe you just read the cliff notes, watched the movie. If it was a thousand word essay, you counted every word and it was exactly a thousand words, not one more. That was Jonah. He was doing just enough so that he could say, I did it, Lord. It took, a th- it took three days to get a decent visit into Nineveh. You know, so like if you were going on vacation to New York and you asked somebody who had been there, you know, how long do I need to allow to, to really see everything in New York? They might say, oh, you need a week. Okay, it was sort of like that. How long did it take to get in a good, decent, and get your business done in Nineveh? Three days. Jonah goes in one day. It's like he just kind of steps in the door. He preaches a five-word sermon and says, drop the mic. I'm out of here, God. I did it. I went. I preached. I'm out. The author wants us to see Jonah's bad attitude. He wants us to see the half-hearted attempt at obedience. Jonah still doesn't have compassion on this city. And we'll see more of this next week. But I have to ask as I look at this. All right, so we know what the author of the book is trying to communicate about Jonah. But did Jonah really just preach five words? Did really? Did he only say 40 more days and then it will be overturned? Because look at verse 8. Let's go ahead and skip ahead. Look at verse 8. This is the king of Nineveh. The king of Nineveh in his decree says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. How did the king know that it was Jonah's God who had overturned the city? How did he know that it was God's judgment on their wickedness and violence? How did he know that repentance and sackcloth and fasting would spare them? Here's what I think. and I'm just my speculation. I think that Jonah's sermon got the king's attention somehow. And the king probably asked Jonah to come and see him. And he probably had a lot of questions for Jonah. And he probably kind of pulled, like pulling teeth, kind of drew this information out of Jonah. Now, scholars believe that the Assyrian king here may have been Ashurbanipal. And see, during Ashurbanipal's reign, Assyria was struck with a number of disasters, just one after another. They had famine, they had plagues, they had an uprising, they had military failures. And perhaps God was using these events to prepare the king's heart for Jonah's message. Which once again demonstrates it's not all up to us, is it? God never brings someone for you to witness to them that He's not already been tilling the soil of their hearts, preparing them to receive the seed of the gospel. And maybe God was preparing the king's heart for Jonah's very brief sermon. 
But let's take a moment and consider this message that God spoke through Jonah. There's two parts to it. First is the bad news. There's the bad news. How many of y'all like to be the bearer of bad news? Now, that's what I thought. We love, we love to share good news. We love to talk about the goodness of God and the love of God for people. But there is a bad news side to God's message. For Nineveh, the bad news was God's going to turn over this city in 40 days because of your wickedness. For us, the bad news is that if someone doesn't turn their life over to Christ, they will suffer separation from God in hell for all of eternity. That's true. Now, our culture is especially resistant to the bad news side of the gospel. People don't want to hear they're sinful. If you try to tell somebody they're a sinner, they're going to say, well, you're, you're intolerant. That's judgmental. Who are you to say I'm living my life wrong? Didn't Jesus say not to judge? This is my truth. I'm just following my heart. God made me this way. That's our culture's response. People don't want to hear that there's moral absolutes. In fact, relativism and pluralism are two of the predominant philosophies of our day. And they tell us that we have to accept every idea and every perspective as equally true and valid. Which means that if you assume that you are right, that Christianity is the only way to God, well then you're just being arrogant and hateful. Now, of course, this is where their logic breaks down. We've been talking about this in our Wednesday night study, and Ravi Zacharias points out, he says, there's a problem with saying all truth is relative. Does that include the truth, that all truth is relative? Is that truth also relative? If so, then what reason do I have to believe you when you tell me that all truth is relative? Maybe even that truth is true for you and not for me. It's it's illogical to say that all truth is relative, and we know it's not true. But Jonah had to take Nineveh, the bad news they did not want to hear, so that they could have a chance to hear the good news. The judgment is not certain if their ways change. Now, of course, Jonah enjoyed bringing the bad news, right? In fact, Jonah was secretly hoping they wouldn't believe and turn their lives over to God. He didn't want them to receive God's mercy. He wanted them to suffer God's wrath. He wanted to see Nineveh overturned. He couldn't wait to watch God drop the hammer on them. Jonah preached the good news, not with tears, but with glee. You noticed in our Old Testament reading this morning in Psalm 139, Blake, that was kind of some hard stuff to read, wasn't it? About hating God's enemies and all of that. That was Jonah's attitude. I don't know if you've noticed, but But a lot of Psalm 139 that's been our Old Testament reading this month parallels beautifully with each chapter of Jonah's story. But there's also a good news side to God's message. And Jonah's five-word message, the good news, it is implied. But again, looking at verse 8, Jonah must have somehow conveyed the possibility of repentance and grief over their sin. And if you look at verse 8 and you look at chapter 1, verse 2, it helps us to understand the source of God's wrath because Assyria was extremely oppressive and violent. And many Old Testament prophets, besides Jonah, prophesied against the people of Assyria. But God's goal wasn't to get Assyria to become Jews. He was just trying to get them to reform their society. He was just trying to get them to practice biblical justice. And so he preached that message, both the bad news about their sin, but also the good news that if they turn from their wickedness, they can be saved. Now, God calls us to preach a much broader, deeper message than just social reform and justice. 
God wants us to proclaim the gospel. That God loves this world so much, He seeks to save it by leading every person to repent of their sin and to commit to following Him in trust and obedience. And this is only possible through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as we've been learning on Sunday nights, God has a design for everyone to live in relationship with Him and to bring Him glory. But because of our rebellious sin, we have broken our relationship with God. We sought our own glory rather than His. And we might try to fix our brokenness through religion or through politics or through doing good deeds or through any number of things, but none of it works. We need a Savior from outside of our broken system to come. And Jesus Christ alone is qualified to fix the brokenness in our world, to take the suffering, the wrath of God for our sin upon Himself that we might become the righteousness of God. By His wounds, our brokenness can be healed. And it's only by repentance of our sins and faith in Him that we can pursue and recover God's design for our lives and our world. That is the message of God. The bad news and the good news. But then next we see our response. Look at verses 5 through 9. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, and he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. Two responses that are required when we hear God's message. The first is the response of faith. That's really the biggest surprise twist in this story is that the Ninevites didn't laugh at Jonah, much to his chagrin. They didn't hit Jonah or arrest Jonah or behead Jonah. I think he would have preferred that to what they did. They believed Jonah. They actually believed his message was trustworthy and true and they demonstrated that faith through concrete actions. They put on sackcloth as a sign of their sorrow. They fasted as a symbol of their repentance and they cried out to Jonah's God for mercy. The king issued a decree to the whole country that everyone should do these things in the hope that it might bring a divine reprieve. The text says they cried out urgently to God. This wasn't just a half-hearted prayer. This was a matter of life and death. They understood this was about national security. Like the sailors in the storm, they didn't want to perish. John 3.16 even says the reason Jesus came and died is so that if we believe in Him, we shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Paul says that it is by believing that Jesus is Lord and God, that God raised Him from the dead that we are saved. And he goes on to say, for it is with you, your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Faith. Not just a mental belief, but trusting Jesus with your life, trusting Jesus with your eternal destiny is essential for salvation. We must first of all believe, but then that belief must lead us to the second response, and that is repentance. Faith and repentance. Now, the Hebrew word for repent, 
which means to turn, is in verses 8 through 10 four times. Four times this word is mentioned. And the fact that against all expectations, this powerful, violent, wicked city put on sackcloth and fasted from the leadest to the greatest is a sign of their repentance. Now there's a weird detail in here about them making their animals also put on sackcloth and fast. Um, and, and it's not talking about pets here, okay? It's not like, you know, Fido has happened to wear sackcloth and, 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 and fast. These animals were manual labor for them, right? It's like your car, right? It's like machinery to get things done. It's food sources. So to not let your animals eat any food meant you were risking their death. It's as if the king was saying, even if we lose our businesses, even if we have no food, it doesn't matter because we are in such trouble before a holy God. They were willing to risk everything to be made right with God. It's serious repentance when we're willing to sacrifice our creature comforts or our social or economic status or our livelihoods or our reputations. This was a genuine, heartfelt repentance. They were giving their all to God. And they rejected their violence, their oppression, their injustice, and their wickedness. Now, I think too often that that we are not serious because we think, well, I walked an aisle. I prayed at an altar. I talked to the preacher. And there's nothing wrong with those things. All those can be very powerful symbols of, of our repentance and our submission. But if that's all you did was walk an aisle and shake a preacher's hand, if all you did was pray at the altar one day and thought, oh, I did that. I'm good now. If those things don't lead to real radical changes in our lives, if we're not willing to risk the things of this world for the sake of the kingdom of God, you have to wonder if you were being sincere. Perhaps we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. Because when we do have genuine faith, we will repent. We will turn from our sins and we will pursue Christ. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. But that means the trajectory of our life is away from sin and toward Christ-likeness. That's what we desire. And if we do that, God will in turn relent. When we change our hearts, God changes His course. And we see that in verse 10, when we see God's mercy. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. You know, God was willing to give Nineveh a 40-day grace period, wasn't He? Forty more days. They didn't need that. They repented immediately. And God relented immediately from destroying them. He took notice of their desire, their efforts to reform and embrace God's justice. And so God showed them love and mercy. The same happens for us whenever we turn from our sins and we put our faith in Christ. Paul said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, having believed in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, having confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved, will be saved. You've heard the message this morning. The bad news about sin and brokenness and God's judgment and the good news that salvation is available to everyone who turns from their sins and puts their faith and trust in Christ. Will you respond today as the people of Nineveh did? Will you believe the message that you have heard? Will you repent 
and turn from your sins to Christ. If you do, then today you can also know the compassion and the mercy of God. And for those of us who already know God's mercy in Christ, we need to ask whether God still needs to do a work in our hearts. Because after God responded with mercy to Nineveh, Jonah was plunged into a new sea, a sea of despair and discouragement because his heart was still not in tune with God's heart. What's your attitude today about your community? What's your attitude towards those who are different from you? How open are you to seeing a greater diversity of people in our own church family? How much of a burden do you have for those who are far from God? Because if we want to see change in our community, in our, in our country, listen, it doesn't start with protests. It doesn't start with lobbying. It's not about petitions or more government programs. It starts with the power of God changing the hearts of people as they come to believe the gospel message and they repent of their wicked ways. That's what will transform our culture. But how can they believe if they don't hear the message? How can they hear if someone doesn't share it with them? And how can someone share it with them if someone hasn't been sent? Well, guess what? God has sent someone to share that message with this community and this world. And you know who it is? It's the person you see in the mirror every morning. God has sent you. And He has sent me. Will we go? Would you stand with me and pray? Father God, we thank You for the mission that You are undertaking in this world to make all the broken things whole again, to right all the wrongs, to forgive all the sins, to redeem every man, woman, boy, and girl. Thank You for the mission that You work in our hearts. Those of us who know Christ, thank You for saving us and for forgiving us. God, I pray You would forgive us for not letting You then speak that message through our mouths, Lord. God, give us the boldness to share the bad news and the love and the burden to share the good news in such a way that people will hear and will respond. Prepare the hearts of everyone that we come into contact with that they would be ready to hear that gospel message from us. That they could have faith and repent of their sins and receive Your mercy. And if there's anyone here this morning that needs to do that, I pray they would do it right now today in sincerity of their hearts. God, give us as followers of Christ a burden for our community and our world, for the people that we rebellows with every day, that we would care enough about them to share Your good news. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Whatever God has said on your heart this morning, would you come and you respond today?